everyone, my name is Will Malice and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus serving the community since 1890, and this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, September 29th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So here in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm assistant news editor. I'm Cassie McGrath, an assistant news editor. I'm Abby Charpentier, the news editor. I'm Irina Kostake, assistant news editor. And I'm Chris McLaughlin, also an assistant news editor. Cool. So um, we'll begin with the first uh, few stories from this week is um, about vaping. Uh, One article we had was by uh, Matt Berg, um, and he wrote about Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker um, announcing a four-month ban on all marijuana and nicotine vaping products. This was implemented so medical experts can gather more information on vaping, according to Baker. And then um, more than 500 vaping-related cases have been reported, and I think as of most recently, the death toll has risen to 12 people. And then Massachusetts is the first state to place a ban on all vaping products. And then I had written an article on how New York State had issued subpoenas to uh, Mass Terpenes, uh, an Amherst vaping company. Um, and the New York State is looking for information on products containing vitamin E acetate, which is a thickening agent that's found in black market vaping products. Um, a study by the Wads- Wadsworth Lab- Laboratory found vitamin E acetate in nearly all cases of vaping-related in- illnesses uh, that it tested um, in New York. And then New York, along with Michigan, um, have both placed bans on only flavored e-cigarettes. And all of this comes after President Trump announced his intention to ban vaping products uh, back on September 11th. So what do you guys think of how politicians are reacting to the increase in vaping deaths and illnesses? Uh, So when Matt was writing his article, uh, I had done an interview based on this. I was able to share my notes with him for that. Uh, When I was talking with uh, somebody from Tobacco Free at UMass, which UMass is a tobacco-free campus and that includes vaping, you're technically not allowed to vape anywhere on campus. Uh, even though people don't necessarily follow that rule. So I think her biggest reaction was she is glad it's happening, uh, but she's sad that it took so many deaths for it to come through. Uh, But at the same time, I don't think this is unprecedented. There have been flavored cigarettes in the past that have been banned. Uh, It's just people our age don't remember it because they were banned so long ago. Uh, So I think the end result is going to be that something flavored might get banned, but I don't think tobacco is going to be dead. You know, after four months, I think tobacco will make a comeback in some way. And then there was an article in the Globe about that looked at um, like vape shops themselves um, and how they're like facing financial ruin based off this because um, if all vaping products are banned for the next four months, they're not they're not selling anything, and then they also have to still pay for like uh, you know like in, insurance and um, in their buildings and have general costs of running a business. So it'll be like interesting to see how like vape stores can survive through all this. I went into the CVS. Um, pretty close to downtown Amherst last night and then I looked up and I saw that all the vaping products were gone and there was a sign there and it kind of just hit me like wow that was such a fast regulation and how like um it is surprising that like people are following it too. So I wonder what this will mean for other parts of the state where you're near the borders and you're able to go and get those products from other states. Uh, So now that Massachusetts has banned it I wonder whether that's an incentive for neighboring states to also ban or whether that's an incentive for them to do nothing. No, for example, we're not that far from New Hampshire up here. If politicians in New Hampshire thought, oh, well, our business is going to do really great, 
if we choose to keep vaping products around. I, or they could also do the opposite and say, well, we should go with Massachusetts and also do a four-month ban. Yeah, totally. And do you know if, like, if someone gets a vaping product from another state and then brings it into Massachusetts and then they use it, are they allowed to do that, or is it... Uh-huh. Well, as far as I understood, the four-month ban isn't on vaping itself, so people are still legally allowed to use any products they already have. Um, they would just be forbidden from reselling it in Massachusetts. Okay. So, like, if I... I'm not a legal expert here, but I think if you went and bought it in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, or Vermont, and then if I came back here and tried to sell it to somebody else, that could be a crime. Uh, but if I just chose to use it, it would not be a crime. And hopefully, like, in this time, they do research on it. And, like, hopefully it's not just they just ban it. And then, like, what do you do after four months when once the ban's over and um, you have to, like, make a more uh, official decision? But um, Cool. So, um... So, uh, so the next article was written by uh, Sophia Gardner, and it's about um, UMass adapting after accepting its largest freshman class. And this is kind of a f- follow-up to what we talked about on the very first episode of the semester about um, how UMass accepted uh, like around 5,800 students, uh, and that was an like an 800-person increase from the previous uh, semester. Um, so some of the stuff that UMass is doing is that they've um, converted some doubles into economy triples, and then common rooms have been turned into quads. Um, this is only in low rises. Um, the towers at Southwest use common rooms as emergency exits. Uh, and then also McNamara in Sylvan was converted into a freshman dorm over the summer. Previously, the building had only housed transfer students, but now uh, transfer students are housed in, uh, around campus. Um, and there's also potential for McNamara to become a multi-year hall. And um, RAs are dealing with less common room space for students. Uh, and now a lot of halls are using shared spaces where students will schedule times to be able to use them. Uh, and the university is changing its formula for projecting how many students it can accept, but uh, it still plans to grow in the future. So yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on this? Um, I'd say it's pretty evident there are a lot more people on campus. You go to a dining hall and you just see more people going about, uh, more tables full. Um, I think it's a good thing that the school is has more students and um, more people want to come to UMass, but at the same time, it's also tough because it puts more of a burden on the system as a whole and for students who already go here because um, it reduces common spaces like, uh, like lounges and stuff like that. And we talked about in the first episode how classes may fill up more because with more people at the school and more people need to fill the requirements, um, class sizes more limited, it could be a burden. So it, it, I feel like we're going through a bit of a transitionary stage right now where mm-hmm. more people want to come to UMass and more people see UMass as a, as a better school to want to come to, but it's also tough because maybe we don't have all the space <coughs> needed to accommodate everybody quite yet. Yeah, and I found it really interesting, the article talking about uh, looking into next year, they're going to look at ways to cut back the number of students that are accepted and enrolled here, which of course makes sense when you consider we don't have the accommodations to take as many students as might want to attend here in the first place. Uh, But I can't imagine how high school seniors must feel hearing that kind of news when they're looking at applying to UMass. And I'm I'm not sure you can consider UMass Amherst the safety school, which I think there's definitely a lot of people in the past that have operated on that assumption they'll make it in. So if they're cutting off those numbers, I wonder what that impact like uh, for students applying, especially in-state students, on where that'll go. Yeah, and to your point, like 
people want to, I think people want to come to UMass also because it's a relatively, like, inexpensive school. Like, I'm not saying, like, obviously it costs $30,000. I'm not, like, saying that's yeah. not expensive, but, like, compared to other schools. Um, so it's kind of tough for those students. Um, and I think also to, to your point, Chris, earlier, um, a lot of, like, the discussion has been around, like, how are they going to expand, like, housing and make more housing for students? But um, there also needs to be, like, like just having like just general space on campus like they might need to make more dining halls like like more, make more classes so it's really like they have to expand in like every aspect almost in theory it is a great thing to have more people here because um it's like a larger alumni network it's more voices in classrooms um but i just remember applying and um UMass was like my only real financial option. So I think that that's something really to consider for the school if they're going to continue um, updating the algorithm of accepting students. They should also continue updating the school, like we said, like building more buildings for students um, and faculty, like hiring more professors and things like that. And just assuring that like they take as many people as possible and making it as comfortable as possible for everyone here. Yeah, definitely. All right, so um, move on to the next article uh, that was also written by uh, Sophia Gardner, and this is about the first SGA meeting of the semester. Uh, so some of the big things that happened was they swore in, um, sorry if I pronounced this wrong, but Uju Enoki, uh, as secretary of the registry, and they also swore in senators. Um, they voted against joining the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network um, on the grounds that it does not follow a student co consultation policy, but uh, they're willing to revisit it in the future. Uh, and the SDSN encourages groups and organizations to work together to fight uh, issues in the world. Um, and they also discussed implementation of a program called Gradescope. Uh, and this program allows teachers to grade handwritten homework uh, and exams faster and gets grade scores quicker. And that's planned um, to be integrated with Moodle uh, by the beginning of the year of next year. Uh, I thought Gradescope seems pretty interesting. Uh, could be like a cool program that helps teachers grade and get grades back to students quicker. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was interesting. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I attended the meeting and um, the vote for the SDSN I thought was just super interesting um, because they voted on it three times. The first two times it tied and the meeting was approaching two hours at that point and they had to vote on it for the third time. And the two sides uh, were people that were voting yes were saying, well, why not? It's a sustainable organization. Why wouldn't we do something that could potentially help the environment? Why wouldn't we want to be the first student government association involved um, in this organization? But on the other side, it was a technicality where they didn't pull enough students to see if they were interested. They needed 150 people, and they had 75. And... There was another technicality within their bylaws. Um, so it makes sense that it didn't go through. But at the end of the day, for me personally, it was kind of surprising if they're going to pass it again later. I get, of course, they need to follow the rule set in their own bylaws. But um, after the third vote, I was, like, surprised that they were still talking about it, you know. So is so a student consultation policy, is that what you mentioned about how they, like, get the opinions of students? And, yes. Um, so that was like really like the argument against it was that they just didn't 
follow that bylaw. Right, they didn't poll enough students. I would be surprised though if they did talk to 75 more people that they wouldn't have been like, yeah, of course we should be involved in this. Um, so that's why it seemed like a bit more of a technicality to me than like the fact that people really didn't want the program to be involved in the program. So did they mention like they actually plan to go out and interview 75 more students? Um, they did, yeah. They seemed like they were totally open to that. So hopefully in the future it passes and UMass can be a part of it. Cool. Um, so this was the first meeting of the SGA. Um, do you guys have any like predictions on stuff that might come from SGA in the next few months? I just have a question. Have the freshmen already been voted in? Like the new freshman senators or? I don't think so. Okay, so yeah, I'm excited to see well, like. It, it did say goes. newly elected senators were appointed, but I'm not sure whether that counted for people in the spring oh, or was okay. that. I think it was from newly people elected. in the spring. Okay. Okay. But, um, um, I mean, you were at the event, so I feel like you would yeah. have noticed if there were a bunch of freshmen. There, it didn't look like it to me, but yeah. So that'll be interesting, I guess, to see who's elected as new senators, fresh voices. Yeah, something um, I know they had been talking about in the last few semesters was um, there was a social justice coalition that was um, started around the time um, last fall semester um, when there was like a lot of racial incidents happening. Um, but that was run by Natalie Amazon, who isn't uh, vice president anymore. So I wonder if they're going to move on with that or if that's continuing. And then there was also like a restorative justice task force that they were talking about all pretty much last semester. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that will continue. I think it, I think it will. I know that the RJ task force is definitely still working on initiatives and I believe that the social justice committee is still intact. I think that someone else might be running it, but I would assume that they're continuing with it because I think both of those issues are important. Cool. All right, so um, for our next story, uh, Chris. So I had um, the opportunity to go to a ribbon cutting ceremony earlier this week, this past week, um, and it was for the Massachusetts the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation Hall. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but it's a really cool building. Um, it's actually a restored 19th century um, horse barn that used to be located just west of South College. And what they did is they systematically dismantled it back in 2017 and then rebuilt it to as much as they could to the original structure at the Agricultural Learning Center, which is the center for the UMass Student Farm. Um, and students in the Stockbridge, Stockbridge School of Agriculture, and it's right off North Pleasant Street, and it's a pretty impressive building, I will say. Um, it's, um, as I said, a horse barn, so it's a pretty large, it's got um, like these gabled windows, and um, they call them eyebrow windows, so they kind of look like little eyes peering out of the roof. So it's pretty cool, and it's a little interesting piece of campus history because um, it's such an old building. It was used back in the day for purposes like um, they had, I think they're called Percheron workhorses that the university used to use because the school was an agricultural college at one point. So that whole area of campus was all barns. Where the rec center was was a barn. Where Mullen Center was was a barn. Um, so it was very interesting to see. And this was the last barn that was actually there. And it was once used by UMass police as their mounted patrol like, station where they kept the horses that the police would ride, which I thought was just a very interesting little fact. And so now it has a new life um, as the home base for the students who are studying farming. And 
it seems like a really good fit for them. It was a big investment from the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation. Um, they mentioned some of the speakers at the ribbon cutting event who included um, Chancellor Subaswamy, who was there, the director of the Stockbridge School and the dean of the College of Natural Sciences all spoke at the event. And students who work on the farm seem to be a very devoted bunch. They really get a lot of work out of it. They go there early in the mornings on weekdays to pick vegetables, wash them, package them there, and then they distribute them to all these different local outlets such as like Big Y Supermarkets, um, UMass Dining, and the weekly um, UMass Student Farmers Market, which is right here on campus every Friday um, on the East Campus Pond Lawn. So it was a really cool event to cover and just very informative, a lot of history in just one building alone. So um, you mentioned about like the police horses. Do they still keep the horses there? Or are they still going to? Um... Uh, no, they stopped, actually stopped using it for the UMass Mounted Patrol about a decade ago or a little over a decade ago from what I learned. So it kind of just sat there disused for like a decade just in the middle of campus. And so they decided to give it a new life. It doesn't actually have any horses there now um, in its new location. It's mostly just there for students and vegetables. But they did have horses at the ribbon cutting, um, which was a nice little touch. Yeah, so it's um it's always cool reading these like types of articles so you get to like learn about like a different part of campus. Like I wouldn't like I didn't really know about like what all the work that like UMass student farmers do and um and stuff, so that was really cool. Yeah, it's really impressive when you actually talk to these students and the work that they put in every morning. Yeah, especially I'm in the student farm share, so like I get my vegetables every Friday from the student farm. Uh, and they're up very early and they're at the student or they're at the student farm table all day, and you get a lot of vegetables out of it. So I'll just plug them there. I really <laughs> love it. I'm really glad I did it this semester. But it was a very good article by Chris. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. just on like the produce thing, I, I wrote the article on the student farmer's market last week, and I got to talk to some of the students who work on the farm, and they said it was like a really great experience for the major that they're doing, which was, I think, sustainable food and farming, if I got that right. And they said it was like, it's a really great way to get hands-on work and they have to learn how to work together with people on the farm so it's cool and it's something that I didn't really even realize existed even though you know we do see like the posters for it and like the agricultural stuff I never like thought about how many students work on the farms and how much goes into it so it's cool. Cool so um uh for our last article uh, Kathy. Yeah so um on Friday I headed down to Mass Vintage which is in um, downtown Amherst and a new upscale thrift shop there um, that is owned by Dan Williams and Madison Diamond, who are both um, 2016 graduates from UMass. Um, so Dan started the company when he was in his sophomore year here. He's an animal science major, but um, he loved collecting snapback hats, and so he would um, look around for them and sell them, um, and then after they graduated, their business just kept growing and they just bought this store and like renovated it where the uh, Knights of Columbus was in Amherst. Um, and all around the store are little knickknacks um, that are meant to put you back into your childhood. There's a bop it, there's a VCR, um, and it just looks like your 90s bedroom when you're a kid. Um, and it's really cool. They have um, all sorts of things there. They have old games. Um, they have figurines, they have like 2,000 articles of clothing, including hats, t-shirts, sweatshirts, um, jackets, 
and they have a dog, Lewis, that runs around the store. Um, and it's very reasonably priced. Um, it's all hand-selected, so they work really hard to make sure that they're buying merchandise that appeals to clients who are mostly UMass and Amherst College students. But um, they also want to keep it affordable because they were students themselves three years ago, and they know that all students don't really have a disposable income. So it was really fun talking to them. Um, Dan proposed to Madison on their opening day in front of like all their friends and family and they just seemed so happy and they were like really excited about this new business. Do you know like how they um, ensure that they always have like like enough products because they're actual like they're they're like they're not like replicas they're like actual like older items. Right so they said that they started doing wholesale so back when it was just a small company they'd go around themselves and pick the products but um, now they work through, I'm not sure like which company they buy them from, but I think that they buy wholesale so it's cheaper and they get like the kind of products that they're looking for so that they can keep up with the customers um, because when something goes, it's gone forever. But another big thing about their company was that, um, well, first of all, they're very sustainable people and um, that's why they wanted to resell the clothes, but also they wanted the every article of clothing and every knickknack and everything not to just be bought but to find like its proper home so um that's why they really want like good products for their consumers cool okay so i think that's all the time we have for now it was great having everyone listen tune in next time and once again i'm will malice i'm katherine eston i'm cassie mcgrath i'm abby sharpentier i'm irina kostake and i'm chris mclaughlin and you've been listening to the collegian news hour the music for this podcast was created by Joaquim Karud and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.